Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning and welcome to Teddy Talks for Saturday, June 6th, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum, and a place where Theodore Roosevelt said the romance of his life began. I just had the pleasure this last week of having a week where I wasn't getting up uh, before dawn to get that day's Teddy Talks ready. There's been a lot of work going on here in Medora, and I've enjoyed the first full week of doing a Theodore Roosevelt portrayal uh, called in this year the Teddy Roosevelt Show. It's focused on Theodore Roosevelt's time in the Badlands. A great source of material for me is uh, Rolf Sletten, his wonderful book, Roosevelt's Ranches. Uh, you can purchase that here in Medora or Send me a note and, uh, and I'll get you a copy going in the mail as well. We hosted here Governor Burgum and uh, Randy Hudson Bueller, the president of the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. This last week, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum hosted the three architectural firms that have been chosen amongst dozen that made uh, submissions in uh, response to the request for proposals. Uh, three architectural firms one from uh, Norway with uh, offices in New York, another from Denmark with offices in New York, and one from Chicago, where the great architect Daniel Burnham, architect of the Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, uh, at which a Boone and Crockett cabin uh, uh, represented uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the men of the West, uh, he said, make no small plans. They have not the capacity to stir men's souls. So we encourage those architects to make big plans, but the big plans that I think are in effect for the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum are to follow in the tradition of Theodore Roosevelt, to connect to this place in some way that heals and transforms life. Theodore Roosevelt came here first with the enthusiasm of a young hunter set for a bison bowl trophy for his home being built in Oyster Bay, Long Island. And before he returned, uh, he wrote his uh, wife, Alice Hathaway Lee, expecting their first child, that she was now the wife of a cattle rancher. Uh, much to her surprise, I'm sure. 
and Theodore Roosevelt would come back, certainly he would have had an intention to um, uh, have some experiences here, hunting and ranching on the Roundup, probably bringing some of his Eastern friends to sample the cowboy life. But when he returned in 1884, it was a, a very impacted man, if not a changed man, but uh, impacted by the death of his wife and mother on the same day, two different diseases, both unexpected. Uh, it was written of the twin funeral two days after their death that Theodore knows neither what he does nor says. He came here and in the company of uh, his ranchmen at the Elkhorn, William Sewell and Wilmot Dow, Bill Sewell recorded that uh, Theodore Roosevelt was rather direct about saying that uh, things in the past should be kept in the past and that he did not wish to care to talk about uh, his uh, deceased wife uh, nor about uh, his prospects for future romance or marriage. None of that was anything that Theodore Roosevelt wanted to uh, discuss. He would late in life write with regards to a, uh, a young lady who was mourning the death of uh, her betrothed. Uh, his counsel through uh, uh, correspondence uh, to a friend of this young lady in mourning was to tell her to put sad things away, to put them away and not to take them out and, and to consider them. A very uh, 19th century Victorian attitude. Today, we're celebrating in uh, Medora the return of uh, people, the completion of wonderful construction at the Point to Point Park on the Little Bully Putt-Putt uh, uh, Golf Course. Not yet completed, but so much getting done as it takes form. The arrival of our Burning Hill Singers and soon the uh, Coal Diggers Band, but the choreographers and producers, all the people involved in lighting and producing the wonderful Medora musical, where we do indeed salute the heritage of the West uh, we salute uh, the life and legacy of Theodore Roosevelt. We salute our veterans and our flag, and we give thanks for our creator and this wonderful natural creation in which we are. With regards to the uh, architects for the library, you can go to the website trlibrary.com. Uh, there you can find out all about the process to date and the prospects for the future. The site that has been chosen by the library still has uh, ways to go to be uh, completely uh, uh, put together and authorized by the various agencies involved. But it is out in the Badlands, and the idea of the museum, I think, is as well uh, to uh, get people right from the museum, right from an inspirational story of the conservation of our wild places and, and of our natural resources, and get them out onto the Matahay Trail and down to the Little Missouri River. The Matahay Trail today will, in part, we probably come close and proximate to the Matahay, but our hosts, certainly the Ibarra family and the Save the Matahay Trail people, uh, they're hosting here in town today the Bull Moose 5K Mud Run. That's 3.1 miles, 5 kilometers. It will be my pleasure to get muddy, if not on the Matahay, or as uh, Mrs. Walton claimed it the other night at our Jaden Terrace, the Muddy Hay. Uh, if you go uh, mountain bike riding along the Mata Hay in the mud. Horse, uh, uh, horses are out on the Mata Hay. Hikers are out on the Mata Hay. We love taking our golden retrievers, Bailey and Bella, on a portion of the Mata Hay up above the Bully Pulpit Golf Course. But uh, I'm glad that you're here on Teddy Talks. I've missed you. Uh, some of you have been uh, with Teddy Talks since its inception. April 1st, the anniversary of the capture of the boat thieves uh, by Teddy Roosevelt and Sewell and Dow. April 1st, 1886 on the Little Missouri. All the way through the month of April and May, we each of those months had 26 days with the 26th president. We could have kept in that format in the month of June, but 
uh, we are really now getting uh, underway here in Medora, and I'm grateful that you've allowed me to have the, uh, uh, the time between Saturday morning broadcast to share with you this date in history, sometimes this date in TR history, also some readings directly from Theodore Roosevelt, from his speeches, from his writings, because I think today we know and sometimes appreciate and sometimes don't appreciate enough the life and legacy of Theodore Roosevelt, but we sometimes, I think, understand it or appreciate it in brief, unless one is indeed a Ted Head or a great American history reader or scholar. We know him perhaps in caricature in the capture of the boat thieves or in the charge up Kettle Hill during the Battle of San Juan Heights in the Spanish-American War or as Midnight Rambles as police commissioner uh, in New York City, or uh, even as uh, the president that not only uh, uh, helped lead the digging of the Panama Canal, but went to Panama himself and in breaking uh, uh, the pre precedent of history, left the United States during his term of office to sit in his Panama suit in a great Culebra cut sitting in that Bucyrus steam shovel, an iconic American image, one that I hope still inspires uh, the desire to innovate and explore and and do uh, the things that uh, we are challenged uh, to do. One of the challenges that I've faced in reprising Theodore Roosevelt and doing Q&A with a modern audience uh, is to take those questions about what would Teddy do, what would Teddy say today, given the uh, situations, the, the particular policies, or just the broader spectrum of human progress, or as Theodore Roosevelt uh, himself wrote, not all change is progress, some change is digression. The issue of race relations uh, is certainly upon us as a country, and I, I shan't uh, delve beyond my own limited uh, ability to see through the glass darkly to, to try to do what I can as a, a good citizen to do my duty, to live up to those words of Theodore Roosevelt of, of never judging anyone by race, color, creed, religion, class, but instead to do what I might do. I rarely, if ever, try to then extrapolate directly into what Theodore Roosevelt might do or say, but then what he himself wrote or said on these issues in his time, in his own words, I think uh, uh, ought to uh, come to the fore. So today, a few readings, uh, uh, some from this first week of June, which we've uh, uh, summarized uh, rather than doing on this date, we're doing sort of uh, during this week. There are some speeches here that uh, address this issue and then a couple taken from out of calendar sequence uh, coming from October uh, in the year, I think, but being very, uh, important to, uh, to hear today. Uh, we're also saluting the lives of uh, Kermit uh, Roosevelt and uh, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Uh, the uh, Roosevelt family is a, a fascinating family, of course, and we know the Roosevelt family in part through this wonderful uh, photograph uh, reproduced, uh, reproduced in, in so many uh, uh, places and times. Uh, this is uh, outside Sagamore Hill at Oyster Bay. Theodore Roosevelt and his wife, Edith, his second wife, seated. Uh, the uh, tall girl in the back with the fancy feathered hat. That's, of course, daughter Alice uh, Lee Roosevelt, uh, the daughter of the uh, uh, president's first wife, who died uh, uh, nearly right after a childbirth in 1884 at the age of 22. Theodore Roosevelt would mourn and come out here and labor and hunt and ranch and uh, uh, travel back to New York City where he told his sisters uh, that uh, under no circumstance did he want to see his old childhood sweetheart Edith Carroll. 
Uh, but sisters don't always do what brothers ask them to do. And one day in the parlor, uh, there was Edith. Theodore and Edith began to see each other socially, became secretly engaged to the point where when the engagement news was leaked to the press in New York City, Theodore Roosevelt had to write his sisters, Anna and Corinne, and apologize for, uh, for not having informed them. So the other five children uh, are from Edith and Theodore, and Ted Jr. is uh, there in the glasses on the front side of uh, Alice, and tucked in between uh, mother and uh, sister Alice, who they uh, in the family sometimes just called sister. Uh, there's Kermit, and then the uh, younger children, Ethel, and uh, the little boys in black, uh, young Archie, and the little boy, Quentin. We will come to uh, Quentin later in the month of June. His passing uh, as the youngest boy and all four boys going to serve in World War I, uh, Quentin, the only to be killed in the First World War, on June 14th, Bastille Day in France, 1918. And a wonderful story to share with you about our adventure in France, uh, playing for Quentin, that we accomplished uh, June 14th and dates attendant there too when we commemorated the centennial of the death and sacrifice of Quentin Roosevelt in uh, uh, Collonges Cohen in France, where he's remembered, and in Normandy, where his body was uh, brought to be beside that of his brother, Ted Jr. And that then does uh, beg the question, these dates uh, and, and why Kermit and Ted Jr. come forward today, and, and they each deserve their own program in length sometime, and, We'll get to that in a future uh, uh, communication, I'm sure. But it was on June 4th, 1943, that Kermit Roosevelt died at his own hand by his own uh, service uh, revolver. And this, uh, and this in Alaska, um, Kermit had suffered from depression, alcoholism. Certainly uh, uh, today we use the, uh, uh, the phrases of a post-traumatic disorder. Uh, I have had uh, friends, uh, military veterans, who tell me that there's nothing disordered about the, uh, uh, the post-incident uh, trauma uh, that someone who's been engaged in heavy combat would experience. Kermit, of course, had been in combat before the other boys because he joined World War I and the British forces in Mesopotamia, where he so quickly learned uh, written and spoken Arabic that he was uh, very often put into uh, the front lines with other officers, British officers in the front lines, and uh, uh, won himself distinction and honor. When the American forces entered, Kermit would, of course, transfer to the American Expeditionary Forces and again put himself uh, the, through his commanding officers in the front lines of action there. Uh, Kermit Roosevelt was the boy fortunate uh, to go with father on the 1909 and 1910 a Smithsonian expedition in British East Africa, in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Sudan. Many of the photographs taken of that uh, expedition were taken by Kermit Roosevelt. Uh, Kermit would uh, go on and, and work in South America for banking and mining interests. And it was there in 1913 that his mother prevailed upon him to go with father, and keep an eye on father during the Roosevelt Hondon expedition down the Rio da Duvida, the River of Doubt, a story so wonderfully told by Candace Millard in, in the book titled uh, The River of Doubt. Uh, Kermit uh, would marry the uh, daughter of the uh, American ambassador to Spain, 
and the Roosevelts were uh, quite uh, pleased with the reception of the Spanish people. 16 years after the Spanish-American War and the liberation of Cuba, in part by one Colonel Theodore Roosevelt of the 1st United States Volunteer Cavalry. But uh, Kermit's life would be uh, a troubled one uh, uh, back in civilian life between the wars. And, uh, he would uh, uh, get a commission in the British military again in World War II uh, and then join the American forces. Uh, he was discharged actually from the British forces uh, for alcoholism and uh, his wife uh, saw to it that Cousin Franklin gave Kermit an appointment. It was so very important in the Roosevelt family to, to serve at a time of need for the country. And uh, Kermit went to Alaska. There, trained the Alaskan militia, uh, participated in some bombing runs with the uh, American uh, U.S. Army Air Corps in that region. And uh, he is buried at Fort Richardson National Cemetery. The arch, uh, the entryway to the cemetery is dedicated uh, in his name and memory. Uh, his mother was told that he had died of a heart attack. Belle, his wife, said that uh, the father, Theodore Roosevelt, had said, where a mighty oak falls, there let it lay. Uh, that perhaps in part explains why Kermit Roosevelt is uh, buried at Fort Richardson. Ted Jr., this date is important in history for the Roosevelt family and Ted Jr., for it was on this day, we cannot forget that 76 years ago today, the Allied forces under the uh, command of Supreme Allied Commander uh, General David Eisenhower, they went ashore across the English Channel. Dunkirk had just been evacuated um, uh, uh, three years prior, and, and now back were coming the Americans, the British, the Canadians, the Australians, the Free French, and others to uh, eventually liberate France. Ted Jr. was the only general officer to go to shore on D-Day, the oldest man at the age of 56 to go to shore on D-Day. He did so at Utah Beach, uh, very often going back to the beach to lead men over the seawall, back to the beach, lead more men over the seawall. Uh, he discovered with his senior officers uh, as they assembled that they'd landed uh, uh, 2,000 meters, uh, a mile or so, away from where they should have landed, and there could be great confusion in the landing if they attempted to now correct the landing point. And Ted Jr., taking a look at the landscape, uh, decided, uh, and the line has been told, gentlemen, the war starts here. Uh, and then ordering that the continued uh, occupation of Utah Beach and Operation Overlord uh, continue there. It was a very successful, probably the, the beach landing that took the fewest casualties uh, per capita of the uh, invading forces, 144,000 men coming ashore in the largest amphibious uh, uh, operation in our history. Um, we remember Kermit Roosevelt, give thanks for his service, rededicate ourselves to anything that we might be able to do to assist the veteran, <coughs> pardon me, the veteran's family, the widow, the orphan, the widower, uh, to uh, to deal with the issues uh, that come up and and uh, uh, the uh, sadness, the trauma, uh, and the issue of uh, suicide amongst our veterans in active duty is a, a tragedy and, and one that we hope we can help assist here. Uh, each and every day we hope that Medora is a place where uh, the veteran and the veterans' families, the active duty and the active duty family, can come and feel uh, respected, safe, secure, a place to 
sit and be listened to or just a place to sit and listen to the silence or the, the singing of the birds and the rustle of the cottonwood leaves, uh, something that uh, helped Theodore Roosevelt to heal after his loss. So to the Roosevelt boys, Ted Jr. and Kermit, I, uh, I salute you and your service. And every night at the Medora Musical, we salute our veterans and we sing the national anthem and we give thanks for the sacrifice of all those who have served beneath her flag. This date in history, uh, again, a uh, bit of the history of our country, perhaps, history of influences on Theodore Roosevelt, and now also brief for the fact that we're compiling a week's worth of this date in history during a, during a Saturday morning visit. But uh, two interesting incidents with regards to the uh, exploration and settlement of our continent. June 3rd, 1539, Hernando de Soto claims Florida for, for Spain. June 3rd, 1608, Samuel de Champlain uh, completes his third voyage to New France at Quebec. Lake Champlain, the, uh, the Champlain Memorial uh, up at, uh, 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 is it Ile de Haute? No, that's Maine. Oh, up on the north uh, end of Sh Lake Champlain, Ile de Mort, if I've got it right now. This is where Theodore Roosevelt was when uh, uh, word came that McKinley had been shot uh, in, uh, in Buffalo, New York. June 6th, 1755, the birth in Coventry, Connecticut colony of Nathan Hale, American soldier, Yale graduate school teacher. He uh, uh, served in the Continental Army, but also served as a spy. Uh, he was captured in New York City, questioned by British General William Howe. On the morning of September 27, 1776, Hale was marched along Post Road to the Park of the Artillery, which was next to a public house called the Dove Tavern at modern-day 66th Street and 3rd Avenue, and he was hanged. He was 21 years old. His uh, speech uh, uh, to those in attendance, his words to the British officers and soldiers nearby vary in their telling, uh, but uh, very often the history is passed down in a short summary of one line, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. The uh, June 6th, 1756, uh, the birth of John Trumbull, the American soldier and painter known as the painter of the revolution. Uh, perhaps the most famous of all that you'll recall is his painting of the Declaration of Independence. If you've got uh, a $2 bill with Jefferson on the front, uh, kept for uh, uh, its uh, uniqueness, flip it over and there's of course a, a rendering, uh, an engraving depicting uh, uh, Trumbull's Declaration of Independence. Others that we would remember, the death of General Warren at the Battle of Bunkers Hill, the death of General Montgomery in the attack on Quebec, the capture of Hessians at Trenton, the death of General Mercer at the Battle of Princeton, the surrender of General Burgoyne at Saratoga, the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown, and uh, General George Washington resigning his commission. And portraits of Washington and Adams. How moving are the paintings of Trumbull. Uh, happy State Day to both Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, June 1st, 1792 for Kentucky to become the 15th state. June 1st, 1796, Tennessee admitted it as the 16th state of the United States. 
This week saw the birth of Brigham Young, uh, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, born June 1st, 1801, and June 3rd, 1808, the birth of Jefferson Davis. And, uh, um, his uh, life was in Mississippi, I'm not sure where he was born, President of the Confederate States of America, previously Secretary of State of the United States. June 3rd, 1844, we should give thanks for the life of public service of Garrett Hobart, American lawyer and politician, senator from New Jersey, namesake of Hobart, Indiana, and 24th Vice President of the United States. The first McKinley administration, the first McKinley Vice President, his death, Garrett Hobart's death in 1899, uh, 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 caused a vacancy in the office of the Vice Presidency. It remained vacant. Had McKinley died with a vacant Vice President, the Speaker of the House would have become uh, a President. I still believe that that was Czar Reed of Portland, Maine. I don't think we'd, uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking it's Thomas Reed of Maine. But uh, it wasn't to be. McKinley lived and uh, was reelected. And uh, on the ticket with him was a young Theodore Roosevelt, governor of New York. And, uh, and there we have uh, history. June 6, 1844, the founding of the Young Men's Christian Association in London. Theodore Roosevelt was a big fan and supporter of the YMCA. June 5, 1850, the birth in Cumberland County, Alabama of Pat Garrett, American sheriff and the man who shot Billy the Kid in the dark, uh, in, a, uh, in a home, he, he ambushed Billy the Kid in a way. Of course, there was great fame that came to, uh, to Garrett. Uh, he was uh, appointed in December of 1901 by President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, he was appointed to become the Collector of Customs in El Paso. The uh, leading uh, uh, politicians of uh, Texas, its nascent Republican Party, uh, greatly in the minority, but also the Democrats with whom Theodore Roosevelt had to work. Uh, they were livid. Uh, uh, Garrett was a New Mexico man, but the region for which uh, the customs office in El Paso, that far uh, western tip uh, of western Texas, also included portions of uh, New Mexico territory. Uh, he became part of Roosevelt's three White House gunfighters, along with Bat Masterson and Ben Daniels uh, in uh, 1902, finally, uh, uh, Garrett was confirmed by the, uh, uh, by the Senate, but uh, there was trouble to come. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, uh, criticism of uh, Garrett in his role, and uh, even uh, public brawling uh, uh, and arrests uh, of uh, uh, Garrett uh, uh, during that time as, as uh, collector of customs. But uh, to show his support for Garrett, Theodore Roosevelt invited Garrett uh, to the 1905 Rough Riders reunion uh, in San Antonio. Garrett brought with him a guest that uh, uh, sat next to the president and that Garrett introduced to the president as a, uh, as a cattle rancher, a gentleman cattle rancher, a prominent Texas gentleman. Uh, this Tom Powers photographed with the president turned out to be a man who ran a uh, place in El Paso, a notorious dive called the Coney Island Saloon. And uh, Roosevelt dismissed Garrett from his office uh, January 2nd, 1906. Garrett would die uh, in poverty under uh, odd circumstances in New Mexico uh, uh, shortly thereafter. June 1st, 1868, the death of James Buchanan, 15th President of the United States. Go into Theodore Roosevelt's writings and he doesn't have much regard for James Buchanan. June 1st, 1872, the death of James Gordon Bennett Sr., the American publisher, 
founder of the New York Herald. June 2nd, 1882, the death of Giuseppe Garibaldi, the Italian general and politician responsible for unifying Italy. June 5th, 1899, the death of Antonio Luna, Filipino general, born in 1866, studied in uh, France, um, a, a scientist, uh, but assassinated on this on June 5th, 1899, by the order of Emilio Aguinaldo, uh, under whom he fought, thought to be allies, but uh, when one studies uh, the American-Filipino War, the Philippine Insurrection, you'll find that I think Theodore Roosevelt is accurate in his estimation of what would happen in Filipino culture if dominated by a hegemony of uh, 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 Filipino dictators replacing the, the Spanish crown. June 5th, 1900, the death in Baden-Weiler, Germany of Stephen Crane, the American poet and novelist uh, in New York City. Uh, he wrote uh, Red Badge of Courage and Maggie, A Girl in the Streets, a crime reporter in New York City during Theodore Roosevelt's uh, presidency of the police commission. He was also, uh, he went to shore with the Marines at Guantanamo during the 1898 uh, war and uh, wrote glowingly of the Rough Riders whom he observed and traveled with during the war. Um, June 4th, 1912, Massachusetts becomes the first state of the United States to set a minimum wage. June 1st, uh, uh, by appointment, June 5th at the swearing-in, 1916, Louis Brandeis becomes the first Jew appointed to the United States Supreme Court. June 3rd, 1916, the National Defense Act is signed into law, increasing the size of the United States National Guard by 450,000 men. Theodore Roosevelt, of course, uh, was greatly critical of the lack of preparedness by the Wilson administration and actually saw a great deal of, that was flawed with regards to this particular act. The first Pulitzer Prizes were awarded June 4th, 1917. Amongst those recipients uh, in the uh, area of history, uh, Jean-Jules Jusserand, Theodore Roosevelt's friend, the French ambassador to the United States, included amongst those, uh, those first. June 4th, 1919, the United States Congress approves the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which guarantees suffrage to women, sends it to the states for ratification. That subsequent 1920 election, we celebrated centennial. Each and every woman in this country eligible to do so should vote in memory of those uh, suffragettes that uh, 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 struggled for over a half century to achieve that vote. Uh, two deaths on, uh, in, uh, the, uh, uh, in 1941, in the same week, here in the United States, the death of Lou Gehrig, American baseball player, so much more than that. Uh, he, uh, of course, uh, uh, the um, ALS, uh, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, arterial lateral sclerosis. How wonderful that the, uh, uh, the uh, cold water dunking challenge raised so many millions of dollars to uh, help with the research on that disease. And uh, uh, while Lou Gehrig was probably the most popular German-American, uh, 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 along with his teammate Babe Ruth uh, in uh, the United States, you've got to add uh, the death that week of probably one of the most hated uh, Germans, the death of Wilhelm II, uh, the German Kaiser during World War I. Born in 1859, died in 1941. If I do recall, that was still uh, uh, his abdication still in the Netherlands, as soon as death place to be in the Netherlands. Well, that uh, brings us through a good deal of history. 
I think we're going a bit at length today, aren't we? At least uh, I'm, I'm going a bit uh, longer with our introductory remarks before getting into the Teddy talk portion, the, the actual words and sentiments and actions of Theodore Roosevelt. The, uh, the words I'll share with you first go back to this uh, time period in history in 1884. Uh, I often mention this 1884 time period in our presentations here at the Old Town Hall Theater, uh, for it is in September of 83 that Theodore Roosevelt comes out for his hunt and uh, purchases, uh, makes his arrangement with uh, Ferris and Merrifield for the uh, acquisition of cattle and the operations at Chimney Butte Ranch and Maltese Cross Ranch. When he returns, he does so following the conclusion of the uh, session of the New York General Assembly in the spring and his participation uh, in early June in the Republican National Convention hosted in Chicago. It's the first time that he works very closely with Henry Cabot Lodge, who from this time through uh, Theodore Roosevelt's death in 1919 would be one of his staunchest allies and, and friends. And in 1884, uh, the uh, combination of Lodge and Roosevelt and those who were against the nomination of Senator Blaine uh, from the state of Maine as the Republican nominee, one of the early efforts to push back against the uh, uh, railroading of the convention or the orchestrating of the convention by its uh, national uh, uh, committee uh, is an effort successful by Lodge and Roosevelt, uh, the former a delegate from Massachusetts to the convention and Theodore Roosevelt, a delegate from New York. Uh, Henry Cabot Lodge has made a motion to seat Congressman John Lynch of Mississippi as temporary chairman of the convention. The National Committee had recommended a, another candidate, his name not at hand for me right now, but uh, uh, this is Theodore Roosevelt's seconding of Lodge's nomination of John Lynch. Congressman John Lynch of Mississippi is a former slave, an African-American member of Congress, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt has an appeal to his fellow delegates on that date to, uh, to decline the recommendation of the National Committee and instead to make their own uh, a temporary chairman uh, through this uh, a vote being seconded, uh, the motion being seconded by young Theodore Roosevelt. I trust that the motion made by the gentleman from Massachusetts will be adopted and that we will select as chairman of this convention that representative Republican, Mr. Lynch of Mississippi. Mr. Chairman, it has been said by the distinguished gentleman from Pennsylvania that it is without precedent to reverse the action of the National Committee. Who has not known numerous instances where the action of a state committee has been reversed by the state convention? Not one of us but has known such instances. Now there are, as I understand it, but two delegates to this convention who have seats on the National Committee, and I hold it to be derogatory to our honor, to our capacity for self-government, to say that we must accept the nomination of a presiding officer by another body, and that our hands are tied and we dare not reverse its action. Now, one word more. I trust that the vote will be taken by individual members and not by states. 
Let each man stand accountable to those whom he represents for his vote. Let no man be able to shelter himself behind the shield of his state. What we say is that one of the cardinal doctrines of the American political government is the accountability of each man to his people, and let each man stand up here and cast his vote, and then go home and abide by what he has done. It is now, Mr. Chairman, less than a quarter of a century since, in this city, the great Republican Party, for the first time, organized for victory and nominated Abraham Lincoln of Illinois, who broke the fetters of the slave and rent them asunder forever. It is a fitting thing for us to choose to preside over this convention, one of that race whose right to sit within these walls is due to the blood and the treasure so lavishly spent by the founders of the Republican Party. And it is but a further vindication of the principles for which the Republican Party so long struggled. I trust that the Honorable Mr. Lynch will be elected temporary chairman of this convention. I'd, I'd like to have at hand the, uh, uh, the count of the, uh, of the votes uh, on that particular day. Perhaps for another day, I'll, I'll uh, uh, reiterate uh, the address at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island of young Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, June 2nd, 1897. Uh, for those uh, uh, associated with, uh, um, uh, that have studied, uh, perhaps intrigued by Theodore Roosevelt's relationship to the United States Navy, his preeminence in building up a, a modern Navy and uh, helping to found uh, and lead the Navy League of the United States. Uh, this is a, an important speech uh, summed up by uh, this, if I may. I've, I've mentioned I, I don't wish to simply excerpt or edit, but uh, uh, we can revisit the speech. But uh, his introductory phrases are, are those that I sometimes quote from the stage. A century has passed since Washington wrote, to be prepared for war is the most effectual means to promote peace. We pay to this maxim the lip loyalty we so often pay to Washington wor Washington's words, but it has never sunk deep into our hearts. Indeed, of late years, many persons have refused it, even the poor tribute of lip loyalty, and prate about the iniquity of war, as if somehow that was a justification for refusing to take the steps which can alone in the long run prevent war or avert the dreadful disasters it brings in its train. The truth of the maxim is so obvious to every man of really far-sighted patriotism that it is mere statement seems trite and useless, and it is not over-creditable to either our intelligence or our love of country that there should be as there is need to dwell upon and amplify such a truism. A line I do love from the, uh, uh, from the speech. Peace is a goddess only when she comes with sword girt on thigh. <laughs> I uh, am glad that I've had a chance to uh, very often visit and be inspired by the, uh, by the memorial uh, that's been erected to the tomb of President Abraham Lincoln in my native state, uh, the capital city, Springfield, Illinois, and on its west side, the great uh, National Cemetery there, and President Abraham Lincoln and his family uh, entombed there. 
Uh, this is what Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, and it was uh, brief remarks during his visit to the Lincoln Monument in Springfield, Illinois. And these are the uh, concluding, uh, this is the concluding day before his train takes him back to Washington, D.C. in his home after having spent uh, a, a good portion of uh, the better part of two and a half or, or so months out on the road traveling the country, the railroad that is. It is a good thing that the guard around the tomb of Lincoln should be composed of colored soldiers. It was my own good fortune at Santiago to serve beside colored troops. A man who is good enough to shed his blood for the country is good enough to be given a square deal afterward. More than that, no man is entitled to, and less than that, no man shall have. When we do uh, uh, get into, and, and we will hear with uh, next, the remarks of Theodore Roosevelt at Tuskegee Institute in Alabama in 1905, you'll hear language that uh, certainly is uh, uh, at, at best dated, at worst seems to be archaic or insensitive, uh, recalling as well that the ascendancy of the National Association uh, uh, for Colored People, and even the phrase today, the uh, people of color, uh, we can, uh, I think, find that language changes and has nuances. I don't find that when Theodore Roosevelt here says that uh, something is uh, uh, in relation to the Negro race uh, or uh, uh, to the colored man, that he is uh, being respectful uh, of his audience and, and of those uh, members of that race as defined by these terms. At Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama, this is October 24th, 1905, we famously know that Theodore Roosevelt uh, had uh, as his dinner guest in October of 1901, uh, Booker T. Washington. They'd spent the day working on important issues at the White House. Uh, uh, Washington, at the end of the day, was to head to his hotel, uh, and Theodore Roosevelt invited him to return for dinner. The uh, guest list uh, for the previous evening was spotted by a newspaper man late at the White House that evening. And by the morning, the word had sped, spread by telegraph and newspapers throughout the South, Southern senators, racists, all uh, uh, had horrible things to say about uh, uh, what the president had done. And the president uh, uh, would uh, say that he had done the right thing and was ashamed that he had uh, briefly hesitated to do so in his own mind before uh, issuing the invitation. Critics of Theodore Roosevelt will point out that uh, there wasn't a subsequent meal uh, with Booker T. Washington at the White House, but many visits, uh, probably the most important Southern counselor that Theodore Roosevelt had was in the person of Booker T. Washington. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt would speak at Booker T. Washington's memorial service 10 years following his remarks. These are taken from October, but I thought it important to at least get Theodore Roosevelt a bit on the record with regards to his role in hopefully improving race relations during his time period as president. October 24th, 1905, at Tuskegee Institute, Tuskegee, Alabama. Mr. Washington, friends, and pupils of Tuskegee Institute, to the white population as well as to the black, it is of the utmost importance that the Negro be encouraged to make himself a citizen of the highest type of usefulness. It is to the interest of the white people that this policy be conscientiously pursued and to the interest of the colored people that they clearly realize that they have opportunities for economic development here in the South, not now offered elsewhere. 
Within the last 20 years, the industrial operations of the South have increased so tremendously that there is a scarcity of labor almost everywhere, so that it is the part of wisdom for all who wish the prosperity of the South to help the Negro to become in the highest degree useful to himself and therefore to the community in which he lives. The South has always depended and now depends chiefly upon her native population for her work. Therefore, in view of the scarcity, not only of common labor, but of skilled labor, it becomes doubly important to train every available man to be of the utmost use by developing his intelligence, his skill, and his capacity for conscientious effort. Hence the work of the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute is a matter of the highest practical importance to both the white man and the black man, and well worth the support of both races alike in the South and in the North. Your 1,500 students are not only being educated in head and in heart, but also trained to industrial efficiency. For from the beginning, Tuskegee has placed a special emphasis upon the training of men and women in agriculture, mechanics, and household duties. Training in these three fundamental directions does not embrace all that the Negro or any other race needs, but it does cover in a very large degree the field in which the Negro can at present do most for himself and be most helpful to his white neighbors. Every black man who leaves this institute better able to do mechanical or industrial work adds by so much to the wealth of the whole community and benefits all people in the community. The professional and mercantile avenues to success are overcrowded. For the present, the best chance of success awaits the intelligent worker at some mechanical trade or on a farm, for this man will almost certainly achieve industrial independence. I am pleased, but not in the least surprised, to learn that many among the men and women trained at Tuskegee find immediate employment as leaders and workers among their own people, and that their services are eagerly sought by white people for various kinds of industrial work, the demand being much greater than the supply. Viewed from any angle, ignorance is the costliest crop that can be raised in any part of this union. Every dollar put into the education of either white man or black man in head, in hand, and in heart yields rich dividends to the entire community. Merely from the economic standpoint, it is of the utmost consequence to all our citizens that institutions such as this at Tuskegee should be a success. But there are other and even higher reasons that entitle it to our support. In the interest of humanity, of justice, of self-protection, every white man in America, no matter where he lives, should try to help the Negro to help himself. It is in the interest and for the protection of the white man to see that the Negro is educated. It is not only the duty of the white man, but it is to his interest to see that the Negro is protected in property, in life, and in all his legal rights. Every time a law is broken, every individual in the community has the moral tone of his life lowered. Lawlessness in the United States is not confined to any one section. Lynching is not confined to any one section. And there is perhaps no body of American citizens who have deserved so well of the entire American people 
as the public men, the publicists, the clergymen, the countless thousands of high-minded private citizens who have done such heroic work in the South in arousing public opinion against lawlessness in all its forms and especially against lynching. I very earnestly hope that their example will count in the North as well as in the South, for there are just as great evils to be warred against in one region of our country as in another, though they are not in all places the same evils. And when any body of men in any community stands bravely for what is right, these men not merely serve a useful purpose in doing the particular task to which they set themselves, but give a little lift to the cause of good citizenship throughout the Union. I heartily appreciate what you have done at Tuskegee, and I am sure you will not grudge my saying that it could not possibly have been done save for the loyal support you have received from the white people round about. For during the 25 years of effort to educate the black man here in the midst of a white community of intelligence and culture, there has never been an outbreak between the races or any kind of difficulty. All honor is due to the white men of Alabama, to the white men of Tuskegee for what they have done. And right here, let me say that if any community, a misunderstanding between the races arises over any matter, infinitely the best way out is to have a prompt, frank, and full conference and consultation between representatives of the wise, decent, cool-headed men among the whites and the wise, decent, cool-headed cool colored men. Such a conference will always tend to bring about a better understanding and will be a great help all around. Hitherto, I have spoken chiefly of the obligations existing on the part of the white man. Now let you remember, on the other hand, that no help can permanently avail you save as you yourselves develop capacity for self-help. You young colored men and women educated at Tuskegee must by precept and example lead your fellows towards sober, industrious, law-abiding lives. You are in honor bound to join hands in favor of law and order and to war against all crime, and especially against all crime by men of your own race. For the heaviest wrong done by the criminal is the wrong to his own race. You must teach the people of your race that they must scrupulously observe any contract into which they in good faith enter, no matter whether it is hard to keep or not. If you save money, secure homes, become taxpayers, and lead clean, decent, modest lives, you will win the respect of your neighbors of both races. Let each man strive to excel his fellows only by rendering substantial service to the community in which he lives. The colored people have many difficulties to pass through, but these difficulties will be surmounted if only the policy of reason and common sense is pursued. You have made real progress. According to the census, the colored people of this country own and pay taxes upon something like $300 million worth of property and have blotted out over 50% of their illiteracy. What you have done in the past is an indication of what you will be able to accomplish in the future under wise leadership. Moral and industrial education is what is most needed in order that this progress may continue. The race cannot expect to get everything at once. It must learn to wait and bide its time. 
to prove itself worthy by showing its possession of perseverance, of thrift, of self-control. The destiny of the race is chiefly in its own hands and must be worked out patiently and persistently along these lines. Remember also that the white man who can be of most use to the colored man is that colored man's neighbor. It is the Southern people themselves who must and can solve the difficulties that exist in the South. Of course, what help the people of the rest of the Union can give them must and will be gladly and cheerfully given. The hope of advancement for the colored man in the South lies in his steady, common-sense effort to improve his moral and material condition and to work in harmony with the white man in upbuilding the Commonwealth. The future of the South now depends upon the people of both races living up to that spirit and letter the laws of their several states and working out the destinies of both races, not as races, but as law-abiding American citizens. That uh, same trip uh, around the country, a, a tour of the South, and, and perhaps Theodore Roosevelt's first extensive tour of the South, in 1905, his first visit to his his mother's ancestral home, uh, Bullock Hall in Roswell, Georgia, and, of course, built by slaves, Bullock Hall. Uh, the slave court is wonderfully renewed uh, by the people of Roswell. It's a municipal museum there. The interpretive story of the slaves of the uh, Bullock family uh, kept alive at uh, Bullock Hall in Roswell, Georgia. And then uh, 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 on from uh, Georgia and Alabama, on out uh, through the uh, states of Mississippi, famously touring um, uh, the battlefield at Vicksburg and speaking at the county courthouse there for the first time in his life, actually saying something nice about that son of Mississippi that we mentioned his birthday, Jefferson Davis. Jefferson Davis's widow, I do believe, uh, who wore black throughout her life and attempted to uh, resurrect uh, the memory of uh, her late husband. Uh, she wrote Theodore Roosevelt, for he had written uh, of uh, uh, Davis being a traitor, uh, had written vociferously against Jefferson Davis. And uh, she wrote him that she knew he would eventually come about and, and see the light. But Theodore Roosevelt wasn't touring the South uh, to necessarily garner votes. The South was entirely democratic. Uh, he, uh, the closest he came to winning any Southern votes was Missouri in 1904, a border state during the war. The Deep South was thoroughly democratic. And uh, we would, of course, see with the advent of Woodrow Wilson, the establishment of Jim Crow, the segregation of the federal government, and a great deal of pushing backwards against some of the uh, progress that Theodore Roosevelt had made. City Park in Little Rock, it's sometimes called MacArthur Park, uh, in part because the General Douglas MacArthur birthplace is there at the old uh, Little Rock uh, Armory that's in City Park. It's not that far away from the uh, Clinton Presidential Library. It's a beautiful park, uh, a lot of bird life and water running through, but it was there that uh, some 10 or 15,000 Arkansans gathered October 25th to hear uh, Theodore Roosevelt, the visiting president, and Governor Jefferson Davis. Uh, I don't believe kinfolk uh, to the uh, uh, Confederate, but uh, of the same name and obviously uh, named in, in honor of that uh, uh, Southern uh, officer. The remarks of the governor that preceded the presidents included a language supportive of lynching. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's remarks that I'll read include extemporaneous remarks by the president in response 
to uh, Governor Davis's remarks. October 25th, 1905, City Park, Little Rock, Arkansas. Governor, Judge Treber, and you, my fellow citizens, I am fortunate enough to have spoken all over the Union, and I have never said in any state or any section what I would not have said in any other state or in any other section. I am fortunate in being president of a nation where you do not have to praise one state by running down any other state. Arkansas, the New England states, the Western, the Eastern, the Northern, the Southern, they are all good states and I am for them all. The thing that has impressed me most as I have gone through this country from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from the Canadian border to the Gulf, has been not the superficial differences of our people, but the essential likenesses of our people. The average American is a pretty good fellow, and all that is necessary, as you men of the honor guard, you men of the blue and the gray know, is that he should know the other average American and they will get on all right. That is true as regards locality and locality, and true as regards occupation and occupation. Thank heaven we are free now from all danger of sectional antagonism. We must now see that there never comes any spirit of class antagonism in this country, any spirit of hostility between capitalist and wage worker, between employer and employed, and we can avoid the upgrowth of any such feeling by remembering always to treat each man on his worth as a man. Do not hold it for him or against him that he is either rich or poor. If he is a crooked man and rich, hold it against him, not because he is rich, but because he is crooked. If he is not a rich man and crooked, hold it against him still because he is crooked. If he is a square man, no matter how much or how little money he has, stand by him because he is a square man. Distrust more than any other man in this republic the man who would try to teach Americans to substitute loyalty to any class for loyalty to the whole American people. Republics have flourished before now and have fallen. And they have usually fallen because there arose within them parties that represented either the unscrupulous rich or the unscrupulous poor, and that persuaded the majority of the people to substitute loyalty to one class for loyalty to the people as a whole. Remember that the rancorous envy that hates the rich is only one side of the shield whose obverse is the insolence and arrogance that looks down on the poor. The two qualities are fundamentally the same. They only differ in their manifestations because it happens that the man showing one is in a different position from the man showing the other. You show me a rich man who is arrogant and insolent in his disregard of the man of less means, and I tell you that the same, if he loses his wealth, will want to plunder every rich man. In the same way, the man who preaches the gospel of hate and envy toward his fellows who are better off, if he becomes better off, will oppress the men whom he once championed. Distrust the man who would persuade you that he would do you good by trying to do any other man harm. The man who is true to you will ultimately be the man who is true to the great fundamental principles of righteousness. In public life, the man who seeks to persuade you that he will benefit you by wronging someone else, if the chance arises, 
will surely try to benefit himself by wronging you. What as a nation we need is to stand by the eternal, immutable principles of right and decency, the principle of fair dealing as between man and man, the principles that teach us to regard virtue with respect and vice with abhorrence, wherever either the virtue or the vice may be found. If we substitute for the line that divides the decent man from the man who is not decent, the line dividing the rich man from the poor man, or the line making any other artificial division, we will have done irreparable wrong to the nation itself. Governor, you spoke of a hideous crime that is often hideously avenged. The worst enemy of the Negro race is the Negro criminal and above all the Negro criminal of that type, for he has committed not only an unspeakably dreadful and infamous crime against the victim, but he has committed a hideous crime against the people of his own color. And every reputable colored man, every colored man who wishes to see the uplifting of his race, owes it as his first duty to himself and to that race to hunt down that criminal with all his soul and strength. Now for the sign of the white man, to avenge one hideous crime by another hideous crime is to reduce the man doing it to the bestial level of the wretch who committed the bestial crime. The horrible effects of lynch law are shown in the fact that three-fourths of the lynchings are not for that crime at all, but for other crimes. And above all other men, Governor, you and I and all who are exponents and representatives of the law owe it to our people owe it to the cause of civilization and humanity to do everything in our power, officially and unofficially, directly and indirectly, to free the United States from the menace and reproach of lynch law. We can afford to be divided on questions of mere partisanship. They do not make any real difference compared to other questions. The questions of currency or the tariff are of no consequence compared to the fundamental questions the questions upon which all good Americans should be one, the questions of decency in the life of the home and of honesty in public life. It makes very little difference in the long run whether it is a Democrat or a Republican who is president compared to the importance of honesty and broad patriotism. It makes all the difference in the world that we shall have all our public officials honest, clean men, earnest to serve their countrymen wherever they may live. The candidate is the candidate of a party, but if the president is worth his salt, he is the president of the whole people. Remember, the stream does not rise any higher than its source. You cannot have good public life unless you have as a basis good private life. The country is going to be all right if the average man is decent and clean in his home life, if he is a good husband, a good father, a good son, if he does his duty by his neighbor, if he is the kind of a man you are glad to have as a neighbor and glad to do business with. If that man is the average American, America is going to continue to be all right. And if the average goes below that, you cannot make the country right. I have great respect for a good man. There is only one person I respect more, and that is a good woman. And if there is any man here who does not agree with me, I do not think much of him. The foundation of our happiness and well-being lies in the preservation of the typical American home, the kind of home in which you veterans of the Civil War were raised, 
so that when you went to battle on whichever side you fought, you had the memory of what your fathers and mothers had taught you to rest upon and to live up to. We of the younger generation, my comrades of the National Guard here and all of our time inherited from these older men of the heroic days, these men of the great civil war, this splendid country of ours, we inherited our position in the world. Let us see to it that we leave to our children unimpaired and improved the heritage which we received from our fathers. Shame to us if we treat the great deeds of the men of the past as excuses for laziness or idleness or shirking of duty on our part. Let us treat these great deeds as an incentive, as a spur. Let us feel that we should hang our heads if we do not prove ourselves worthy representatives of the men who are before us, you men of the South here, whose heroism and valor for four years of war have been well nigh surpassed by the heroism and valor you have displayed in the 40 years of peace following it. Let us go on with the work of the material upbuilding in this country, and at the same time remember that, vital though it is to have a good foundation of material well-being, yet it is only the foundation and upon it must be built the superstructure of the moral and spiritual higher life of the nation. We all honor you, men of the Civil War here, you men of the blue and men of the gray. We honor you because when the call to arms came, you treated material considerations as dross to be cast aside, not to be for one moment weighed in the balance compared to the proud privilege of laying down everything, life itself, on the altar of your duty as light was given you to see your duty. Let us have that same spirit deep in our heart. I have uh, uh, revisited a, a bit of the uh, technological uh, uh, challenge that we've had. I, I hope that we are still coming through on this particular broadcast. Uh, I've got one more uh, speech, if I may. And, and again, this uh, from our time period, June 1st, 1906. And this at the commencement address at Howard University in Washington, D.C. This is an HBC today, a historically black college, and uh, Theodore Roosevelt spoke there, uh, commencement, June 1st, 1906. Uh, I'll conclude our visit today with these remarks. I appreciate you being along. We'll be back next Saturday, June 13th, just shy of commemorating the uh, anniversary of Quentin Roosevelt's sacrifice in France, and just shy of our June 14th all-horse flag day parade. Uh, here in Medora. I hope you'll be able to join us sometime this summer. June 1st, 1906, Howard University. The remarks of Theodore Roosevelt. And if you would, allow me. Mr. President, ladies and gentlemen, and you in particular, members of the graduating class, what I have to say will be largely to supplement what Congressman Burton has said and to emphasize one or two points that he made. In speaking to any body of graduates, I always feel like laying particular stress upon two points. The first point is the necessity that the graduate shall have high ideals. And the next point is that those ideals shall be practical so that it is possible to come measurably near living up to them. I always distrust a sermon in which there is insistence upon a line of conduct which cannot possibly be achieved, 
because I feel that those who most enjoy such a sermon on Sunday are apt to be those who live farthest away from it on weekdays. We must insist upon high ideals. If there is not such a high standard set before us, then indeed will our fall be miserable. We are never going to come quite up to the standard, and it is necessary that the standard should be raised aloft. My plea is that it should not be raised so far aloft as to make us feel that the minute that we come to apply ourselves practically, that there is not any use of striving after it at all. I want to see in the breast of each man and each woman here on the stage, of each man and each woman here in the audience, the firm purpose to strive after what is high and honorable, and at the same time a practical realization of the difficulties to be encountered, which will make you have before you something to which you hope you can measurably attain. I want each man here who is graduating, each girl here who is graduating, to feel that in the first place he or she must be able to keep himself or herself. You men here who are going into the law, into medicine, you who are going to teach, your first duty is to achieve so much of material success as will enable each of you to keep himself and to be a help and not a burden to those closest dependent upon him. Probably there are several of your number to whose families your college years have meant considerable self-denial so that the son could get the advantages of education. The man to whom so much of practical family affection has been given owes it not only to himself, but to those who must be far dearer than himself to achieve the material success that will justify their self-sacrifice as well as his effort. I would not for one moment say to any man that he must not regard material success. On the contrary, he must regard it. The material well-being must be the foundation stone in his career. He must pull his own weight first before he can be of any use to anyone else. If you are not able to help yourself, to keep yourself in food, clothing, shelter, to keep those dependent upon you in food, clothing, shelter, you cannot possibly help anyone else. On the contrary, you will be a burden upon others. Therefore, you cannot afford to neglect the duty of providing for yourself the material success which is indispensable if you are to count as an element of help in the lives of those to whom you owe most. I do not wish to see any college graduate leave an institution like this with his eyes so firmly fixed upon the stars that he forgets that he has got to walk on the ground. There must be in the first place the foundation of successful effort, the ability to earn a little more than your keep before you can count for anything else in life. So much for the purely practical side of idealism. That is the foundation. Without that as a foundation, you can no more build a superstructure than you could erect this building if you did not have a foundation. There are any number of utterly foolish people who pride themselves upon being practical people, who think the foundation is all. If there was only a foundation here, you could not form any idea of what building might be put upon it. It might not be at all like a church. So with the character of every man, he must have as a basis the foundation of material success. But that is only the beginning. And if on that he builds badly, it would be better that the foundation had never been laid. If he builds ill on the foundation, then it would be better that he had not had in him the power to achieve material success at all. As soon as you have achieved that measure of success, 
which means your ability to hold your own. Then you are false to the teachings of your alma mater. You are false to every worthy tradition of the social and religious life. If you do not, in good faith, turn to with resolute effort to make those who are not as well off as you as you are a little bit better because of the exceptional opportunities that you have enjoyed. You can render that service in more than one way, and there are several indispensable ways in which you must render it, if it is to be rendered at all. And mind you, when one speaks the deepest truths, they are bound to be so homely that they are almost seem trite in the repetition. The first indispensable prerequisite to bettering your fellows is to better those that are nearest to you in everyday life. I have a profound distrust for the individual with the philanthropic longing to do good to mankind at large, whose own wife and children do not first experience the effects of that philanthropy. The first and most important field in which to show your fealty to a high ideal is in the field of the family. If the man is a good husband, son, father, if the woman is a good wife, mother, daughter, Neither has accomplished all, but each has gone a good way toward it. Each has taken the most important step toward it. To you on this plat platform, much has been given, and from you rightfully much will be expected. I was pleased to hear Congressman Burton dwell with such emphasis upon the fact that it is not the college days that are the happiest. Just, Mr. Burton, as I was glad to hear you dwell with even greater emphasis upon the praise of honest effort whether it is crowned or not, with what we call success. There are exceptions, of course, but speaking generally, it is not true that the college days are the happiest, just as it is not true of any really worthy man or woman that, looking back on life, he or she will say that the times were happiest when there was least to do. The highest law of life is the law of worthy effort. The greatest chance that can come to man or woman is the chance to do something worth doing. You have not the right stuff in you if you look back at the easy or effortless days as being the days that were happiest. The days that are happy are the hard days, out of which you win triumph, the hard days where effort is crowned at the end. I have spoken to you tonight simply as I should speak to any body of American college graduates. Yet each of you has an additional responsibility to bear beyond the responsibility that every college graduate in this land must bear. You are those of your race to whom most has been given, and in addition to the burden of honorable obligation resting upon you as educated American citizens, to do your duty by the Commonwealth, rest the burden of honorable obligation so to carry yourselves that your lives may be a guide and an inspiration to all of the people of your race, that your lives may justify your race in the eyes of the American people. The rights of each man are important, but his duties are more important still. If the duties are well done, sooner or later in a time to be measured only by the inscrutable working of providence, the rights will take care of themselves. And oh, my fellow citizens, I ask each of you the fullest and most generous performance of duty in accordance with the highest sense of obligation toward your Creator and toward your brethren, not only for the sake of our nation as a whole, but the, for the sake of that portion of our nature, nation which belongs to your own race in particular. 
I do hope and pray that when I read the words, I can do justice in their reading. And I apologize that on occasion, I get a, a, a little tongue-tied in the delivery. I'd like to read it without uh, any imperfection whatsoever, and perhaps with practice and production uh, that will come. To the American people, to the spirit of brotherhood, to the legacy of Theodore Roosevelt, who in my estimation, moved race relations in a positive direction during his lifetime through his public and his private life. To his sons, Ted Jr., who went ashore on D-Day, June 6, 1944, and died in the fields of France of a heart attack the following month. To Kermit Roosevelt, who traveled with his father on his great adventures, who served our country, the cause of freedom for other peoples, and who took his own life while in the uniform of the United States Army. To our veterans in active duty, you are not alone, and I hope that you will call and ask for someone to help and to listen. And we're always available here at Medora, where every night is Veterans Appreciation Night, and uh, each and every day I hope you might uh, contact me if you might like to walk the Badlands together, just listening to the birds and the leaves. God bless and keep you all. Take care. Goodbye. Good luck.